0: Hey, welcome back, everybody. I have two of my favorite people on this show today. One is Lynn Redwood, who co-founded the Children's Health Defense with me and Lynn, and really was the person who more than any other recruited me into this movement. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Lynn, for ruining my life. Gee, <laughs> Lynn was a, is a nurse practitioner, Lynn Redwood, RN, MSN. What does MSN stand for?
1: Master of Science in Nursing, and then CRNP. Following that, as Certified Registered Nurse Practitioner.
0: All right. So, and she uh, she was a public health official in Georgia, gave hundreds or thousands of vaccines to people and ordered them for people, and then noticed that her child her child who got autism had a hundred and twenty five times the EPA federal safety guidelines for mercury. She found this out because she had gotten a memo from a health department warning about mercury in one of the vaccines, and she didn't even know that mercury was in there, and then started doing these measurements. And she was really the person who, more than any other, linked mercury and vaccines to this exploding autism epidemic. She co-authored a landmark paper, Autism, a Novel, Novel Form of Mercury Toxicity, in 2000, She testified before the Government Reform Committee on Mercury and Medicine. She has testified before the Human Rights and Wellness Committees many, many times. She's appeared as a witness in congressional hearings. She has published many other publications. She participated in and formally reviewed the Institute of Medicine's 2008 report on Autism and the Environment. She was appointed by the secretary of HHS to the National Institute of Health Interagency Autism Committee, which she served from 2007 to 2014. And her her resume goes on and on. She's an extraordinary person with an encyclopedic memory and knowledge of this area that I don't think anybody else has. And the only person who comes close to her is our next panelist, Merrill Nass who also has been involved with this from the beginning. She has a a BS in biology from MIT and MD from the University of Mississippi in 1980. She went there because her husband was a faculty member, He's a board-certified internist in Maine, known for her expertise in anthrax, bioterrorism, the anthrax vaccine, Gulf War Syndrome. She is the leading expert on the anthrax vaccines, probably in the country, and their use as in biowarfare. She identified the first modern use of anthrax as a biological weapon during the 1978 Rhodesian Civil War. She also has testified before seven congressional committees on bioterrorism, Gulf War Syndrome. She consulted for the Director of National Intelligence and the World Bank on bioterrorism. Her son practices medicine at UVM Burlington. Both of these ladies played key roles in the evolution of our organization. Merrill, as many of you know, is currently under attack by a stone Cops Group, kangaroo court and uh, of the medical board in Maine, who she's been making monkeys out of. And that's a really, really enjoyable video to see what you're doing to those guys. I, I urge people to go look at it. It's on the CHDTV website. If you want to see doctors who are hiding under the table practically when Meryl is testifying, it's really kind of a gratifying experience. I wanted the two of them here today because they both kind of have an expertise in RSV. And we're now told that we're in the middle of an RSV epidemic, which may be true. It's become an education crisis, a child health care crisis, but also it has become a vehicle for re-implementing the COVID-19 playbook all over the country and responding with, with vaccines. And there's an irony here, and Lynn was one of the people who uncovered this and wrote a beautiful article about this in one of the first issues of the Defender, which is the genesis of this. That this, you know, RSV, which is now the most common respiratory virus in children, and it kills fourteen thousand kids or forty thousand adults each year. It I think it sickens hundreds of thousands. This is before the crisis. The polio vaccine and other vaccines, unlike bacteriological vaccines, cannot be grown in isolated cultures. They need to be grown on tissue. And hundreds of thousands of monkeys were imported into the United States in 1955 to grow poliovirus on and their systems were literally a septic system of different viruses that had never been, that were endemic to them, that no longer harmed them. They'd reach an equilibrium with the monkeys and the chimps, Uh, but they could be deadly to humans if they jumped species and the the vaccines became a vehicle for those viruses to jump species. One of those viruses was the simian virus 40 which is a very, very potent carcinogen, Bernice Eddy, who is the NIH scientist who uncovered this and warned her bosses, you were about to give cancer to an entire generation, 98 million people when they already had the vaccines ready. She said, guess what? 98 million of these contain are contaminated with a monkey virus that is so potent as a carcinogen that today it is used by lab technicians to induce tumor growth in rats. And they gave that to the entire baby move generation. And today, you know, the cancer rates, soft tissue cancer rates are up, I think, 10 times in this year after spending hundreds of billions. We now have 10 times the rate of cancers in the baby boom generation. And you know, many people believe that's because all of us who were injected back then had this, you know, contaminant simian virus 40 that has been in our systems incubating cancers ever since. Oh, well, I've spoken enough. I want to start with Lynn because you know a lot about, you've written about the history of this. Tell us what happened and how did we get RSV?
1: Well, Bobby, it's really fascinating. And what you said is, you know, exactly true. The virus, unlike bacteria, has to grow in live tissue. And so primates, especially chimpanzees, were utilized, you know, to grow all of the polio vaccine during that time period. And this research was taking place up at Walter Reed Research Institute in uh, Silver Springs, Maryland. And at the time in 1955 at the boom, Bobby, they were using 200,000 monkeys, chimpanzees a year to produce the polio vaccines. So they were being shipped in all over the world. And one of the batches of monkeys actually had a bad cold type virus. And they noticed this and it was the whole group. And they thought, you know, what if we expose these monkeys that we're using for the polio vaccine to the monkeys that we're also using for hepatitis B vaccine development? I wonder if they will get it. So sure enough, when they did that, the other chimpanzees got the virus as well. So then they've actually purposely exposed one of the laboratory workers, a young man, to this virus as well and they drew blood on him and initially he had no antibodies. The name of this virus at the time was chimpanzee coronavirus. So that's basically a cold type virus, runny nose, sneezing, low grade fever, those types of things. So anyway, within 14 days, this young man developed an identical infection and he developed antibodies to the CCC virus. So that pretty much made them realize that, yes, this can jump species and it can infect humans. So this young man was living in a barracks with a lot of other young workers who worked there at Walter Reed. And after several weeks, they started showing up in the clinic there with different illnesses. So they started drawing blood on all these people and they found that the infants that came in that were sick had no evidence of this virus, but it was predominantly in this group of young men and their teens and twenties. Well, what's interesting is eight of those young men were actually barracks mates of this initial case. And so they noticed after that, that infants started getting this and they found infants over at Johns Hopkins, which is 30 miles away, presenting with a very similar virus. So the NIH decided to fund a group of researchers at John Hopkins to do a further investigation into this. And what's interesting about this is that this was also funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Infantile Paralysis Foundation, which was also working on the polio vaccine. So they identified this virus and it was very similar to the chimpanzee coronavirus. It had this very distinct look when you looked at the blood under the microscope of these large inclusion bodies. So what they decided to do was to change the name of this virus from chimpanzee coronavirus to which would, away away the, which would have given away its, its origins. Yes. So now because you wouldn't want to set tell a, a young parent that their child has a a virus from a chimpanzee for Pete's sake. So they had to rename it. So it became yeah, RSV. Are, virus. How in the world did that happen? And, and you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So this is one year after, and this is at Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins researchers who identified this and made the recommendation to change the name. So we never hear about this. I mean, if you go and do a Google search and you put in RSV and chimpanzee Corizovirus, a few articles will pop up amazingly but you'll never hear this on the news that, gosh, did you know that this virus actually came from chimpanzees? So from that point on, Bobby, this thing was so incredibly contagious. So the next reports they get, I think they're in 1956 or 57, and this time it's in Chicago. So they have a group of infants there in Chicago. The researchers are baffled. They don't know what this is. They end up looking at it under the microscope, and guess what? It's CCA virus, now RSV virus. So then it travels from Chicago, it's at Johns Hopkins, and then it actually jumps all the way to Australia. And this was all within a matter of three years. And there were articles published in the 1960s talking about how all of a sudden they're seeing this new presentation in infants, whereas typically infants would have a cold, you know, a runny nose, a sore throat, but what was different about RSV is that it affected the lower respiratory tract. So they developed bronchitis, a a disease called bronchiolitis, which is another inflammatory disease in the lower respiratory tract. They also were developing pneumonia. So this was a completely different presentation. So within a matter of three to five years, we created this disease well, we were responsible for bringing it in, not that we created it, actually nature created it, but that we allowed for it to jump species. And it's just been devastating. I mean, throughout the years, if you look at the research right now, Bobby, what the World Health Organization says, that since the introduction of RSV from chimpanzees used for the development of polio vaccine in the 1950s, created the new respiratory disease that is the second largest cause of death and children under one year of age. And this is only second to malaria. Malaria is the number one cause of death. The World Health Organization has estimated, and this was in 2017, that RSV caused 33 million serious respiratory infections, more than 3 million hospitalizations, and 60,000 deaths in children under the age of five every year. And 99% of those deaths are occurring in the developing world, not here in the U.S. But still, this was a very devastating thing that happened. And I think... It's interesting. If if you
0: compare then the numbers to how many people, you know, are allegedly saved by the polio vaccine, you probably, the vaccine, if you include deaths from respiratory, from RSV, and the annual deaths probably exceed alone the, the annual deaths on polio prior to the vaccine and then certainly if you add in simian virus 40 which you know the number of people who are dying from those soft tissue cancers annually are 10 times or more an order of magnitude larger than polio that's the problem with the vaccines is the long term cause and the true cause are never assessed and nobody's held accountable
1: And And there may very well be other viruses, too, in the vaccines, Bobby, that evidently there's hundreds of other simian viruses in the vaccines. And unlike SB40, we're not even certain what diseases they're associated with. The Uh, RSV disease,
0: Chronic fatigue syndrome has been associated with those uh, monkey viruses. And then, of course, HIV. If you read the river, which is the history of the HIV, they... You know, he makes a very, very persuasive case that it came from uh, Hillary Karpowski's and Stanley Plotkin, Stanley Plotkin's polio vaccine, which they gave to a million kids that they, they grow grew on bonobo kidneys, which were contaminated with HIV, and then gave it to a million kids in West Africa, and then it hopped from there to Haiti after the revolution. Because all these Haitian aid workers who were employed in the Congo because they spoke French, and the United Nations had been importing Haitian workers. They were very educa- highly educated and they spoke French, so they were using them there. And that they then, in 64, when the Belgians were thrown out, All the Haitian aid workers returned home to Haiti and they brought it. And that's why it landed first in the Western Hemisphere before coming back and hitting Europe. Anyway, that's the thesis of the book. And if you read it, which I have, it's very well written and it's, you know, extremely well documented and extremely, extremely persuasive. So I don't know, but it's it's one of the costs that we need to start looking at when we look at these vaccine programs. Meryl, tell us what's happening with RSV right
2: now. So, I, I differ a little with Lynn in that in how devastating the disease is. My read of the literature, my understanding is that basically RSV for ninety nine percent of people caused a cold, and that's it. And the the people who were seriously harmed by it could be young babies. But again, it was very, very few. From even most young babies, it was just a cold. But it could lead to pneumonia, it could lead to bronchiolitis. And in babies who have very narrow, small airways, you can plug them up. They can have difficulty breathing from you know this virus. And it's, it is highly infectious. And it's said that 97% of kids by the age of two have already had it, okay? It was barely ever tested for, so we don't actually know how many people had it, how many people have died from it, because you only ever got a test for it if you went into the hospital, and even then, not everybody did. Most adults didn't. And the tests are PCR tests or antigen tests, and they're only maybe 80% at best accurate. So... If you go through literature, you'll see that there's lots of different estimates about how many people are sickened by respiratory syncytial virus and how many people die from it. You know, what how big a problem is it? But here's where the problem happened. There was research decades ago into a vaccine for RSV virus and the prototype that was tested in children made them worse when they got the actual infection after they'd been vaccinated and two babies died. And so that basically ended research on RSV vaccines for hey, a very long time.
0: Can I interrupt you for just a second to interject? Uh-huh. I don't want you to lose that thought. I want you to continue it. But during his famous interview with Mark Zuckerberg, Anthony Fauci warned Zuckerberg that actually the COVID vaccine could end up making people more vulnerable to COVID. And he said, gave us an example. He said, this has happened before with the RSV vaccine, which instead of saving children, ended up making them more likely to die if they had the vaccine and then were exposed to the virus than for kids who were unvaccinated. I just want to interject that so people can connect the dots. But <laughs> Please continue, Meryl.
2: So, And the same is true for the dengue, dengue vaccine, which killed children in the Philippines just five years ago, and then in 2019 was licensed in the United States and is being rolled out in Puerto Rico widely, along with a test that will just test to see whether kids have already had dengue. And if they have, you can give them the vaccine, which they probably don't need, but there are four different strains. And if they haven't, you're not supposed to give it to them, but there is a... Despite the fact that most young kids have probably been exposed to dengue in Puerto Rico, that's where this vaccine will be tested on a mass scale. So expect that a big rollout come January. All right, going back to the RSV. So what happened is after enough time had elapsed and everyone forgot about these babies that died, all of a sudden the research expanded and there are at least a dozen RSV vaccines in development. And so the. US government has and the WHO have been pushing RSV now as this dread disease. Is it a dread disease? It is for some people, but we don't know how many, not probably not that many relatively. And it's easy for them to say, you know, 99% of the deaths occur in the developing world because in the developing world, there are no tests for RSV. So WHO and CDC can make up any number they want of how many kids are dying there, but certainly less than a thousand, as far as we know, in the United States per year. All right. So now the developers are close to rolling out vaccines for RSV it's that relaxed, will be I think, well, I licensed oh. or given EUAs. What? I think it's GlaxoSmithKline has one and maybe Pfizer has one. But I did read today in a WHO website that there are 12 in developments. Now, the two that are closest to, to licensure are being targeted to different groups. So one is being targeted to babies and pregnant mothers because it's the zero to six month olds that might die. So they want to vaccinate women during the pregnancy to get them to, to to so supposedly vaccinate the babies. The other one is being targeted to the elderly because suddenly we've discovered that all these elderly people have RSV if they are immune compromised or have uh, problems with their cardiorespiratory system. That may or may not be true but that's a new claim. You know, when I was practicing medicine, we, I never, I don't think I ever once ordered an RSV test on an older, on any adult. It was a disease of babies, but now suddenly it's a disease of adults. So there was a monoclonal antibody developed for RSV, but it turned out it didn't work if you already had the disease and it had to be given monthly to prevent the disease. So, basically nobody was using it. So now another monoclonal antibody has been developed for RSV. And this one allegedly only have to give it once. You give it as soon as the baby's born and it's supposedly good for six to eight months. It is not, not useful for the second year. So at 12 months, it's no good. But since it's the zero to six month old babies, they're claiming that you could, they wanna roll out a monoclonal antibody for all babies. And the reason I know this is because I watched the last advisory committee meeting of the CDC last month, and both of these vaccines and the monoclonal antibody were presented to the advisory committee that has to vote on on rolling them out. And this was very strange to me because the studies on them had not been completed yet. And yet they were being presented to the committee. They were being, the committee was being basically softened up so they would approve them with little data. The other thing I want to say is that one of these vaccines that had only been trialed in a few thousand people managed to cause, well, in the two vaccines, I think there were three cases of Guillain-Barre and there was a death. And so you're developing a vaccine for cold for most people, and yet you're tolerating deaths and paralysis in a relatively small, just a few thousand people in whom the vaccines were trialed. The other thing was that the FDA only required a a lower bound for efficacy. That means when you're only testing a small number of people, you really don't know how effective the vaccine is because you're hoping the people you've given it to and the people who got the placebo are going to get RSV. Well, it turned out in one of the trials for one of the vaccines, they had a thousand people who got the placebo and they had 500 people for whom the vaccine wasn't effective and none of them wound up dying or seriously ill. So how, you know, how bad a disease is RSV? Not that bad, but in terms of efficacy, so this lower bound of confidence interval means FDA says, okay, we don't have enough cases in our trial. So we have a wide confidence interval, which means the effectiveness could be very low or very high. We can't tell given the numbers we've tested it in. So as long as there's a 95% chance that it's at least 20% effective, that's all we're we're shooting for. Just tell us it's at least 20% effective. And so that's what the, the manufacturers of these vaccines had. And one of them said, we've got the 20% lower bound for the confidence interval. And the other vaccine manufacturer said, we've got a lower bound of 28%. So it's like, great. We don't know if the thing works. You've paralyzed a few people and you've killed one probably. And why are we gonna roll this out to pregnant women and elderly and immunocompromised people and newborns? So those are the three products that are coming up for approval in the next few months.
0: Yeah. And again, that 28% is relative risk. It's not actual. It does not reduce your risk of death. Uh, There's no data that shows it reduces your risk of death at all. And it's just a sketchy gimmick for just I remember at COVID, when they were doing this for COVID, Fauci started out saying, we're not going to prove it unless it's at least 50 or 60 percent effective. And we want them to be 85 or 90 percent. It used to be 85 was the threshold. And now they're down to 20 percent. I mean, it's clear what they're doing here, which is selling vaccines. I want to add one thing to that. The vaccine is, is on it. First of all, they need to recommend it at the CDC level in order to get Immunity from liability, which there's no way they're going to roll this out without immunity. So they need to recommend it to children. And then, number two, you know, we saw in Orange County, California, two weeks ago, the health department declare an RSV emergency. Well, what does that do? If they do that on a federal level, then they don't need any, you know, they don't need any testing. And they don't need to give them immunity because they can roll it out as an EUA and they can keep the emergency going forever, just like they have with the COVID vaccine. We are now in a permanent RSV emergency. This is what they can tell us. That's what they're telling us now in Orange County. It's going to go on forever. And that opens the money door and allows these vaccine companies to go in and just empty the United States Treasury in order to make themselves rich. And it gives them immunity from liability and it gives them all the subsidies, you know, for people to buy the vaccines, for them to manufacture. And the whole thing is just a, a racket, the PPR racket, the pandemic preparedness and response. It should actually be called a permanent pandemic racket because that's what they have in the store for us. Lynn, were you going to say something?
1: Yeah, there were a couple of things I was going to say. One is that GSK also had a vaccine that they started trials in pregnant women and they stopped them in February, which was sort of interesting because of a concerning safety signal. They never shared with the public what that safety signal was, but they're moving forward with their development of a vaccine in the adult population. And Meryl, one of the things I wanted to share with you, my husband is an ER doc. He has been for decades now, and he's working in somewhat of a rural environment because he lost his jobs here in Atlanta because he refused to take the vaccine. So he's working in Montgomery, Alabama now, and it's a very busy Emergency room, and he sees a lot of children. And he's been there what two years now or so. He had not been seeing RSV. RSV, like you said, typically was a cold, and all children had it by the time they were two years of age, right? No big deal. But my husband feels strongly that something has changed, and whether or not it's part of viral interference or whatever, but he has seen really sick infants now. He, The other, just a few weeks ago, intubated a two-month-old and had to put them on a respiratory for complete respiratory failure with the diagnosis of RSV. So there is something sort of unique going on right now. Is it because these infants' mothers received COVID vaccines? Do they have problems with their immune system? They're not able to clear this virus. I mean, but something is going on. Is this part of viral interference that we see with other vaccines. So I think it's something that needs to be looked at. We also recently, you know, it was it was in elderly adults that you would also see this who were immunocompromised. One of our board members recently was just diagnosed with RSV virus mm. as an adult. And so we are, and, and it's sort of funny because I know a lot of people have been sick recently that didn't go to the emergency room. And whether or not they also may have had RSV virus, like you said, we don't know. It, I agree with you though, it is somewhat of a mild disease, but I think there is something a little bit different this year about the disease. And you know, during the actual COVID pandemic, we weren't seeing a lot of flu, we weren't seeing a lot of disease, other diseases. And so what's going on right now, and I think it was Dr. McCullough or maybe Dr. Malone that also suggested that the COVID vaccine rollout could result and more pathogenic strains of the viruses that we have now that are fairly common. So you know, I think it definitely requires more research.
0: You know, Lynn, you're familiar with this. I, I two, uh, and almost three years ago, I wrote a letter to Sanjay Gupta. You can go look it up, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s letter to Sanjay Gupta. You can find it still on Google, although they try to put it under 20 other things that criticize RFK's letter to Sanjay Gupta. You go look at that, and it is a it's just a distillation of the leading scientific studies on the flu shot on each point. Do they save lives? Do they, you know, do they prevent flu? Do they do they cause other issues? What are the side effects? And it's just the leading study of the synthesis of it. But one of the most noteworthy things about it is the signal for antibody-dependent enhancement on that. A signal that says, let me withdraw that, because I don't know if it's ADE or some other phenomena that's causing this. But I think there's I think there are about six studies that look at if you get the flu, are you more likely to get flu and non-flu infections in the subsequent years, or are you less likely? And all of them say if you get that flu shot, you are more likely, far more likely, to get a non-flu infection in subsequent years. So it may protect you against that particular strain of the flu, but it makes you more vulnerable to other strains, and it makes you more vulnerable to non-flu respiratory infections. And I think you're familiar with, I I think, the the 2009 data when they gave two flu shots during one year. Talk about that just for a second, Lynn. Describe what happened there. (laughs)
1: Well, just what you were saying, Bobby, with regard to that temporary immunity to the flu that's provided through the flu vaccine, also is making you more vulnerable to other viruses. And it was something like 40% of other influenza-like viruses. And there was a big study, I think it was done by Cowleen in 2009, and it was in infants and they followed them. This was like, we followed infants prospectively in terms of the ones that got the vaccine and the ones that did not get the vaccine. They found absolutely no difference at all in the two groups between the children that got the vaccine and the children that did not get the vaccine in terms of developing influenza. But they found a 40% increase and the children who got the influenza vaccine developing other influenza-like illnesses, and so it was a lot of the enteroviruses, regular cold viruses. So, and that was a phenomena that occurred shortly after getting the vaccine. So, yeah, that is I mean, and, and very and very true. perhaps the same thing that's happening
0: now: the coronavirus vaccine that's given to mothers, and you know, now to little babies. And to adults, yeah. of course, is making it more likely that, you know, is causing an epidemic, triggering a, a pandemic
1: of RSV. Other, other viruses. Yeah, Bobby, the other thing that is really, really concerning to me, and this goes back to my research in autism, is that we know that when a mother's immune system is activated by, say, the flu or a virus, that those antibodies are able to cross through the placenta and go into the baby. And that we see this inflammatory response in the infant. And it's called maternal immune activation. And there was this researcher from Caltech who found that it wasn't actually the virus, like it wasn't actually the flu virus or the viruses that were causing that. this, it was the immune response to the virus. And so if you give a pregnant mother a flu vaccine, or let's say a COVID vaccine, which they're doing now, or this new RSV vaccine during pregnancy, she creates that robust inflammatory response, it's passed through the placenta and goes into the developing brain of the fetus. and it can be absolutely devastating. And one of the clinical trials, there was a blogger that evidently looked at the data so far that has been released and found that in the group of women who had received the vaccine, there were all these different horrible outcomes. Merle, you're familiar with the blogger, the the study that was published. I think we actually wrote about it a few weeks ago in The Defender. And there were none of these abnormalities in the children that were born that got the placebo. So this is something that really has to be looked at closely. And a lot of these, the immune activation in the brains creates this neuroinflammatory process that can go on for years. And it develop, it disrupts the maturation of neurons in the brain and development of different centers of the brain depending on the timing of that exposure. So this could really cause severe long-term neurological damage in these infants that aren't going to be present at birth after exposure, exposure to this immune activation. Marible. There's a great article that was written about yeah. this in so, um, years ago.
2: You know, Ryan Cole is attending the same conference that I am here in, we're in Sweden right now. The conference will be in Oslo. And I feel like I should get him because it, as we drove here, he could tell me at least half a dozen different ways that the spike protein can affect the immune system can, you know can go into different organs and he's the guy with with the real knowledge about this so you know maybe we should get him for another podcast or I can go run and find him now and bring him up here whatever <laughs> you like
0: if you can stick your head out the door and call him we'd love it we'd love to go. All him. right
2: I'll go try to find him you guys talk <laughs> Hi
1: Dr Cole
0: Hi how are you Hey, Ryan, well, I, I wish we'd had you here at the beginning of this, but we, we're talking about Lynn is kind of an expert on the, on where RSV, on the history etiology of RSV. And RSV, I don't know if you know this, came originally from, from the 200,000 here monkeys from a particular group of Walter Reed Animal Hospital that got sick, that had a respiratory infection, they were imported from Africa. The people, the researchers, the hospital then exposed an unsick group and they got sick. And then they also exposed a researcher, a kid who was working for them, and he got sick. He infected everybody in his barrack. And that was the beginning in 1955 of the RSV virus, which then, and Lynn is really an expert and give us just now a fascinating history. But one of the things we were talking about, which is why Merrill ran out and grabbed you, is this phenomenon where it appears, and, and Meryl and Lynn had a slightly different take on this, but I'm actually siding with Lynn right now on that debate. It was a very friendly, congenial debate. And Lynn thinks the pandemic of RSV is real and that there's huge numbers coming in. Her husband is also a, an ER doctor who's just seeing it like never before. And what we were talking about was the possibility that this may be a, an artifact of the COVID vaccines and the damage they've done to immune systems. And I just want Lynn to briefly restate what you told us before about, about the antibodies going through the, the placenta wall and, and impacting the children. And then I want Ryan to kind of add what he, his knowledge about this.
1: Well, this, this is with any infection, Bobby, but it's also with vaccines. Vaccines cause an immune response, and it's that immune response and the release of cytokines that crosses through the placenta barrier and goes into the placental circulation and can cause an ongoing neuroinflammatory process in the brain. And this is based on the research of Paul Patterson's, who the late Paul Patterson. This was his, his baby called maternal immune activation and how dangerous it can be. And he actually reached out to the CDC regarding giving flu vaccines during pregnancy and was quoted in Scientific American Mind saying how dangerous that was because of the maternal immune activation. So the fact now that we're wanting to give these RSV vaccines to the mothers to produce antibodies in the babies and that we're giving pregnant mothers the COVID vaccine, I just think is incredibly dangerous. And that's when the topic came up of the spike protein traveling to all the different parts of the bodies. And I've not looked at the spike protein traveling through the placenta, I'm I'm sure it happens, but is that part of what you're seeing too, Dr. Cole, in terms of your research with the spike protein?
3: Yes, and we've just started a a study group with Dr. Thorpe and a couple other doctors around the country uh, looking at the placentas. And there's definitely a, a placentitis, uh, multiple forms of it. And you're absolutely right. Not only does that spike protein, it's small enough to cross that placental barrier, the umbilical placental barrier and into the fetus, so can these uh, maternal antibodies, but you bring up that great point that that cytokine cascade, cytokines uh, tend to be very small molecules. and so those can also stimulate a cascade. but most importantly of all, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what Dr. Lattapo has done in Florida in terms of the recommendations for youth and not, you know, getting these shots. But think think of the, the pregnant cohort, that lipid nanoparticle goes everywhere. The virus, I like Dr. Urso's analogy, you, ne- you need to open the door to let the virus through, but you just need to crack under the door for this lipid nanoparticle and gene sequence to go through. That lipid nanoparticle can go into the fetus and that it can cross that placental barrier. And then we don't know yet in terms of replication of the spike in the fetus, those studies haven't been done. We're with several colleagues trying to gather some of those uh, autopsy placentas and fetuses so we can look for deposition of spike protein there. I'm highly suspecting we're going to find it. And then, then with the whole RSV thing, I think Bobby's right. We have a problem with immune suppression And viruses obviously mutate season to season. Some mutate slowly, some mutate quickly, but we have an entire population now that's had, you know, 70% have had two shots, maybe 30% have had three, but now we're literally walking Petri dishes of viruses that our body would keep in check any given time we're exposed to them. But because of the T-cell suppression and so many other factors that are suppressed, interferon type ones are suppressed by the spike protein, so many things are suppressed now that parents are spreading RSV to the children, children are spreading RSV to other children. So even the children who haven't received the jab are more susceptible to just a higher inoculum in their environment because of a broad populace that is immune suppressed. So all we're literally walking petri dishes in a population now. And so, you know, a lot of people say, well, gosh, I feel like I've been, you know, spiked, you know, getting shed upon. I I think well, what's really probably happening is you're being exposed to rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, enteroviruses, coronaviruses, et cetera, that normally your immune system would just take care of like it, as, it, as it were nothing, but we're not getting that robust immune response anymore.
0: Meryl, over Glenn, reaction?
2: No, I think that's true. No, I mean, yeah. the problem is Actually, the magnitude of it, these things happening. we have no idea of. And that's what we have to figure out. How long do these effects last? I mean, we have to stop these shots. It's just extraordinary that we're still vaccinating people and that the the EMA committee just approved the shots for younger kids this last week in Europe. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do. Lynn, any closing remarks
0: or thoughts? Lynn. <sighs>
1: Yeah, Bobby, I guess you know, I'm sorry. I it just is, <laughs> is bringing back flashbacks for me of 30 years or not quite 30 years, but it feels like that of of dealing with these bad decisions made by our public health agencies. And I know this whole coronavirus has woken the general populace up to some of their shenanigans, but what they're not aware of is this has been going on for decades, you know, these short safety intervals, not knowing what the response is going to be finding out afterwards that it was devastating and infants died. It's just, we have to take back control of our healthcare. We really do. We have to take some responsibility for our health and we can't rely on these federal agencies anymore. Medicine is being overwhelmed. The practice of medicine now is so controlled by the pharmaceutical companies. My, my only parting words is for people to please follow children's health defense and become educated. I used to be under the belief that our federal agencies were protecting us. And it was a really rude awakening to me when I realized they hadn't done the basic eighth grade math to add up the amount of mercury that they injected into my son to determine it was 125 times his EPA allowable exposure. And from that point in time, I lost confidence and realized it was up to me. And I think the whole world needs to wake up. And realize that their health is up to them and not to accept these recommendations on blind faith.
2: Let me add also that, you know, it's RSV now, but they were talking about chikungunya vaccine at the ACIP meeting. They said, well, the mosquitoes that spread this are, you know, and with global warming, they're increasing their range. And maybe it's only 8,000 people a year that ever get this or are exposed, but In the future, you know, half or two-thirds of the country could be susceptible to change. And so they are planning to roll out many vaccines with, with, you know, minimal testing or fake testing. And what we learned from the coronavirus vaccines is we don't know what's in them, and nobody else knows what's in them. And from one lot to another, it's very different. Why would we expect they're going to improve With these other newer vaccines or newer monoclonals. And by the way, the the COVID monoclonals only work for very few months and then they stop working as the variants change. So I'm just emphasizing what Lynn said is we've got an out-of-control situation where basically the public health agencies and the vaccine manufacturers are one thing. They're working for each other, tremendous revolving door. NIH is getting royalties on all these vaccines they're trying to develop these new vaccines with messenger rna so the i think it's one of the R, or sorry rsv vaccines that has the same sort of configuration open configuration of its spike at the, that the covid vaccines have that was developed at nih which means Fauci's agency is going to get royalties on every dose so many different vested interests are playing into these public health decisions. And so, like Lynn said, don't do it. Don't do it to your children. Don't do it to pregnant women. And now we know that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin work against a lot of viruses. I don't know if they work against RSV. There's probably plenty of safe drugs that work against RSV. If you need them, let's figure that out. Don't start injecting vulnerable, very highly vulnerable people. I want to get all of
0: your thoughts on one final kind of comedic ending to a very alarming podcast, which is this week, a doctor's federally funded, NIH-funded doctors in Houston announced this very encouraging news that they had developed a vaccine or fentanyl that will allow people to take three vaccines and avoid fentanyl overdoses. Of course they're the, the you know the pharmaceutical industry created the the fentanyl problem and has made you know I don't know billions on it and now they're going to do the same thing with the vaccines it was the pharmaceutical industry and NIH that gave us the RSV virus in the polio vaccine and now they get to come back and make more money on RSV and Lynn Merrill Ryan and I but particularly Lynn and Merrill can tell you plenty examples where the pharmaceutical Industry has created a global disease and then sold the product. But, I mean, they, but for virtually the entire list of chronic diseases, they, the neurological disease, ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, ticks, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, ASD, autism, the autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, lupus, the allergic diseases, peanut allergies, anaphylaxis, eczema, all of those are listed side effects on the manufacturer's inserts of the 72 vaccines that are now mandated, recommended, mandated for our children. And those companies couldn't make any money curing measles because the cure is vitamin A and chicken soup, and you can't patent them. But they can make money selling you measles vaccines, and then they can make money selling you the seizure medication, the epilepsy medication, and all of the other stuff that we know a certain number of kids are going to get, and those are lifetime the, the food allergies my kids have. The companies that gave them those allergies from the aluminum shots, aluminum adjuvants, are now selling them six hundred dollar epipens, and you know, and the Adderall that they're selling them after giving them all ADD, ADHD, etc. So that's what they do. That's what they're game from. Lynn said, Americans need to take control of their own health. An axiom to that thought is that these companies, the pharmaceutical industry and NIH, do not want you healthy. They make no money on you when you're healthy. Anthony Fauci's agency will collect no patents, uh, royalties from healthy kids. They want us sick. And the sicker we are, the more they make. So let's keep that in mind when we watch our own health. The final comments by anybody on that?
3: Yeah, we have a sick care system, not a health care system. And Meryl and I on the drive over here tonight, we're just talking about so many nutritional and mineral deficiencies in our population. And as you brought up, create the problem and then create the cure. That's follow the money and all these problems that have been created. But really, basic health and wellness is simple if people are educated on how to do it and how simple it really can be in terms of self-management. And we have an industry run amok. We have a problem with a lipid nanoparticle gene sequence platform that has never been safety tested long-term. And they think they have carte blanche now to do it with RSV viruses, influenza viruses. These are dangerous molecules. We're already seeing the short-term side effects. We have no idea with the long-term side effects, but given their track record, like you brought up, with all these others... I'm not optimistic, and I think people do need to just basically take healthcare back into their own hands. The best doctor you'll ever meet is here right now, and that is you. You need to be your own best doctor and work with those who are going to focus on not the heavy financial solution, but what's the easy wellness solution. Over. Thank you.
1: Bobby, I just had one point I wanted to make. There's no evidence that I have come across that suggests that the polio vaccine itself contained RSV virus but nobody has looked. So we know there's, you know, hundreds of other viruses that the vaccine is contaminated with, but what I was referring to was actually the infection itself that yeah. the chimpanzees had. They passed to the person, so it wasn't the the vector was not the vaccine, but it was actually an illness that had been in chimpanzees for generations, and and now had jumped species. And, I, and,
0: and I'm so glad you clarified that, Lynn. And I, and I hope we didn't say anything earlier on that you know implied that the vaccines were getting the vaccines do did contain simian virus forty, yeah. and
1: and, I, and hundreds of others,
0: and hundreds of others, and we have no idea what the impact of any of those are. But go ahead, finish your thought.
2: And in the developing world, they're still growing polio vex, live polio vaccines on monkey kidneys to this day, although we stopped using them in the U.S. 23 years ago. All right. Well, thank you all
0: very much. Ryan, thanks for joining us on, at the last minute. You look like a movie star, even though you <laughs> have any time to go to your makeup artist, which I know you spend a lot of time doing that. Meryl and (laughs) Lynn, thank you very much, and good luck on your conference in Sweden.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Bobby. Hey. All right, bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.